Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to another version of Bill Roden on Sports. Uh, Bill Roden here. I thought what was going to be sunny uh, Orlando, Florida, you know, uh, but yikes, man. It's like I was in Kansas City for the, the game, man, and it was this looking like Kansas City. Anyway, Uh-oh. here in Orlando, uh, and uh, my, my uh, two great friends and co-hosts are back in New York holding it down, the great Jamal Murphy. Murph. What's up, Bill? Hanging in there here, you know, nothing oh. nothing new. It's, it's still cold out here, still a 20s or 30s or something. Cold enough. Cold enough for the Good big winter. jacket. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, sitting across from uh, Jamal, or I don't know if he's sitting or you're sitting across, but is the Pretty tri-host, uh, the wonderful Aaron Matthewson. Aaron, what's happening? Hi. I'm, like, perpendicular to Jamal. There you go. Some, some kind of angle. Our, yeah. our audience, our, our our fan base doesn't understand that. <laughs> we're sports fans, you yeah. know. We don't know all that stuff. Yeah, we, <laughs> I, I have a question. But when did about perpendicular? When did you start calling Jamal Murph? And are you the only one? Oh please, Murph. That's a, I mean, no. I, everybody calls me Murph. Oh. No, I, was, I was late. I was late to the show. <laughs> everybody since yeah, right. uh, probably since high school. Calls him Murph, right? You know. Oh, now, okay, cool. Now I know. High school, definitely college took off. Took off from there. Cool. Sorry, just that's, just the, that's the history of uh, the we got, we got the, oral, the oral history of Murph. I just had no. <laughs> right. Did they call your dad Murph? I never called him. I never. I never called. Clark yeah. Murph. Yeah. He got that too. He oh, definitely got nice. that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> well, now, what are they gonna call your sons? So yeah. Same thing. Murph. I guess they call him Murph too. <laughs> yeah. So you know, they all get the name. Oh well. It's a good name. Yeah. So anyway, so we got a lot going on, man, in the world of. Uh, Sports. I'm here in uh, Orlando. Uh, there's a Pro Bowl down here, which you can is, skip. That. I, I'm not going to be saying for that, but you know, uh, the undefeated has been doing this series of stories in the year of the black quarterback, and so um, they're recording the show tomorrow, uh, a roundtable uh, tomorrow. Wow. Uh, in fact, Deshaun Watson is going to be on the show, oh, and wow. uh, you know, a couple other people. Okay. And um, yeah, it's going to air the day after the Super Bowl. Hopefully, we will be talking about. Uh, the Kansas City, uh, you know, Chiefs and African American quarterback uh, uh, Pat Mahomes. Let me ask you guys a question okay. about that. All right. I mean, Pat Mahomes. We always call him. You know, he's African American. I've never heard him talk about that because you know his mom's white, his dad's black. Right. And uh, but we've been saying, yeah, we always include him on the list. You have Pat Mahomes. You know. Uh, you know, Deshaun Watson, mm-hmm. uh, Lamar Jackson, mm-hmm. you know, blah, blah, blah. But I don't know. And I mean, I know that gets into a larger discussion right? about, you know, biracial. I mean, you know, we had on the show, um, who do we have on the show, the journalist uh, from the New York Times, uh, Aaron? Oh, Nicole Hannah-Jones? Yeah. Yeah, who's also biracial. There's no ambiguity about her. Right? She clearly identifies as a black woman. So we all think about that. Uh, I've actually heard that he does identify as black, so, I, but I know there's definitely you know, you know people. There was a thing online where people were saying we didn't have any black quarterbacks, and when people were like, "No, Mahomes," uh, somebody responded, "No, he's not black." So yeah, I mean that's nonsense to me. I mean he he's he's black. I mean whether whether he would say it or not. I mean he has a his father is very black, so that makes you black. 
Um, when <laughs> wait a minute, I thought it was the other way. I thought that you were who your mother was. No, either one. If your mother is black, you were black too. If you were, if you, if your father's black, you're black. If your mother's black, you're black. Right. I mean, but I thought your I was. What about your mother's white or your mother's? You know something else. Well, I mean, I didn't, like I didn't make, mother's... I didn't make the rules, right? I mean, wasn't it like, what was the, what was the rule back then? What, didn't you have to be like one sixteenth? Didn't it just took like a little drop or something? But I, I think it's significant yeah, if he okay. identifies as black because you know we definitely know some athletes who, you know, like uh, Derek Jeter who just got into the Hall of Fame. I right. don't think he's ever spoken about his biracial. But I'm, I mean, I know I've, I've heard him. He say he was black. Oh, has he? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, most, well, you know, there's very few people. Sister, there's only a few. But, yeah, the only time we don't consider you black is if you say, yeah, like, I'm a not, Tiger Woods. Like, I'm not. And even then, we still, we still I'm claim not black. him. I'm we okay. still claim Tiger Woods. Let's be honest. Like, as soon as he wins, when he wins the Masters, we, we claim him. That's not. Yeah, if, that's he, if he was Probably. losing, I mean, if he's he, losing, then we start <laughs> to say, oh, well, is he black? I don't know. He's complacent. He's You know, I mean, it is what it is. Right, I mean, right. I always say, because don't get me wrong, with, with, this is a, uh, that is a real discussion. Like, don't get me wrong. I have, like, friends in group chats, they all, you know, they'll say things like that, like, oh, well, is he really, is he really black? But how come, you know, Drake, Drake in, in music, Drake is the same way. We claim him. What, you know, also, I'm not, you know, what's the difference? I mean, if you, if you have a black parent. Wait a minute, what, what is, is there some ambiguity with Drake? Yeah, he's, he's half white, half black. His, mo- his mother's white, his father's black. And what does he say he is? I guess which, he, say he, he, cl- he definitely claims black. Right. He claimed. He claimed. I mean, everybody. Yeah, I, know he, I know he really claims black. That's right. That's right. And and since he's good, we claim him back. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you can be black. <laughs> okay, you can be black. You know. No, but they, but but really, but really, I mean, his father was a you know black pitcher for the Mets. Um, we know, like, I mean, I don't know how you how you not how you could get away with not claiming what. I mean, I get you could, yeah, you could go the other way and say my mom's white, I'm white also, but you, but there's no, I mean, Obama, same thing. What's the difference? Was Obama's wife, uh, mother was black, was white. His father was African. Um, he's the first black president. I don't hear anybody not not you know right. saying that he, we don't know what he is. So, all right. Well, yeah. they're they're the birthers, you know. <laughs> and people who really claim they're biracial, like they're like, no, I'm biracial, and right. that means something. To I them. mean, if we if you start well, taking you know, away biracial, if you start taking away, bi- yeah, because well, because because she herself made a comment about you know right. not like not she wanting said, to be I'm described that way, right? So that so then if you right. say something like that, right. fine, I guess we got it. We have to at least address it, right? But look at look at look at at the other end. Look at uh, Kaepernick now. Kaepernick, uh, right? Same thing. Um, mm-hmm. but he says you know he's black. Yep. And also, it's a thing. You know, it's it's dangerous because you know with the Kaepernick thing, you know people. You know, people who disagree with Kaepernick or you know don't take his side, they're quick to bring that up. You know, oh, well, he's not even he's not even fully black. Um, but you know, right. I mean, well, including your boy, right? Yeah, who's your boy? Not your, yeah, not your boy. But you know, uh, who's on TV? You know, the uh, Marce- football player. Yeah, Marcellus Wiley said that. Marce- yeah. Um, yeah, and not yeah, just him. I, th- yeah. I think uh, I think your boy. Uh, what's his name? <laughs> what's his name? Uh, <laughs> 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 he co-signed. He definitely co- he definitely co-signed it. It's his show. You know, so oh, uh, Jason Whitlock. Yeah, Jason Whitlock. Oh. He co- he co-signed it. Oh, so God. you know, I mean, it, it becomes like a, a a a tool that people you know try to use at, at certain points. It seems like to me. Right. Um, when you're growing up in Chicago, right. You know, I mean, I had a lot of friends. I mean, who are like you know lighter than Mahomes. You know, who, right. And we just you know you know we have names like you know we just say he's just a light skinned black person. Right. You know? And you know, I remember. Well, I first got to Morgan, and somebody, hey, Red, 
Right. And I'm like, red. Right. You know, so we've got all different <laughs> things to, to, to describe our, our different colors. Right. Red, high yellow, right. this, that. But it's all considered black. Right. You know, I mean, if you look at Walter White, uh, the NAACP, I mean, Walter White was so white. I mean, I mean, he was he could have been white. Right. You know, but he considered he was very black. I mean, he considered himself black. So I guess it's really a state of mind. You know. Um, right. If you try to pass, you know, then you get into some trouble. Right. You know, if you're if you're trying to pass for white, then you know. But even then, you want, like I said, it's that whatever the rule was, the one drop rule or the, you know, one sixteenth, whatever. I mean, if you're black, you're black. But then in it, this country. And then it gets interesting when you're like. Uh, People are like, well, he's not really black. Like you talk about Ben Carson or uh, what's his name? Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Yeah, you know, like they're they're Clarence dark. Thomas. They are phenotypically, undeniably black, but people definitely question their blackness. Right. But I guess it's a different type of well, absolutely. Right. Well, uh, that's almost like it's a, a state of mind. Is that I'm black, but I'm not working for black people. So I, I mean, it is a very fascinating discussion. Uh, one that I think that. Yeah, we probably should should have in our community because I think, you know, we all took it for granted that you know, yeah, you're light skinned black, dark skinned black, you're you're red, red, black, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, and we just figured, you know, but I guess back the further you go back in history, you know, you didn't, there were no boxes to check, there's no category. It was like you said, with the one percent rule. Right. Nowadays, you could actually check a box. Right. You know, you could say other. Right. You know. uh, and, 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 and a lot of black people have taken that opportunity. You know, what did Curtis Mayfield say? If you had a choice of colors. You know, so, you know, I, I guess in this time period, you know, just like we were talking about sexuality the other day. Remember on this show? And there's now just not male, female, gender. There's all variations right. of how you want to self-identify. Good point. Uh, which, you know, I think is legitimate. I mean, you know... Uh, if you you know how do you how do you choose to self-identify and um, I also think it's important to to look at it in the context. Also, we didn't you know black people we didn't create this like we didn't we're not the ones who chose to separate ourselves and and say you know we're black you know I'm black and it only takes such and such to be black. That was right. a, that was an American white man con- construct in order in order to well, be able to segregate model, us and discriminate that- against us, right? Yeah. But doesn't but I mean that that raises a question though. Right. That you're right, we didn't invent, but don't we have the right? Doesn't each individual have the right to self identify? Yes. Of so, course. Yes. It's, you know? It's important. Yeah. But I'm just saying like when we're you know, when we say, you know, the year of the black quarterback or we bring up black people doing this or that, like that's in response to what the hand we've been dealt. You know what I'm saying? It's not like we're running around trying to be different or or you know demanding that you know if you have one parent you are just black. I mean that was, an, like I said, an American construct, a white person construct. They created that, and we're just we're we come out of that, and I mean, and it's a response but to if that, you're, that we do that. But if you're, but if you're, I mean, just if, if your mother was white and your father was black, right? You know what are you supposed to say? You know, I mean, <laughs> you not 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 law, not right. You know, not you know not society, whatever, you know, your your mother, you know, one of your parents is white. Mm-hmm. And when, so what happens if you just say, well, you know, I'm, I want to be white. And you're right. Size of no, you can't be white. <laughs> right. Well, police, police will say, no, you can't be white. 
I think there's also, it's kind of like, <laughs> right. If you identify, if you don't identify as black, I think there's this kind of, I think it's, it's almost like a, it's a, it's a card. It's like, it's, you're signaling something. And I think some people see it as negative. Like if you don't claim your blackness, then you are rejecting a certain history. Is that how you, do you guys feel that way? Yeah. And, and then you're also, you're also co-signing like racism. I mean, at least that's what comes across. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're, you're co-signing the treatment of black people throughout, throughout, throughout history. You're, you're joining, you're joining the, the easy, the, the easy team or the winning team. The easy team. Yeah. You're, joining, you're, you're rejecting the struggle. Right. You know, and it's almost like, like, like my father used to say, like, if you're like black Republicans, they, they, like they, they, they got on the short line to success. And, <laughs> I, and I don't they, they, cho- right. they chose the short line. Like, oh, you know, if you because there's so few black Republicans, they'll put you on TV or you know, right. like, they'll they'll prop you up. Whereas you go the other way, it's right. the long haul. Right. And I don't know if that's always fair, but I definitely think that happens. Yeah, no question about it. So, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. you're right. It's, well, it's a it's a discussion that needs to be had more often, for sure. Yeah, and I think getting back to my homes. Cause I, I, you know, I, I met somebody yesterday, maybe last year. I think before last year's playoff, and he was a brother who used to play with the Jets. He now works with Chiefs or something. And uh, we had this conversation about Mahomes. He said, "No, no, no. He, you know, no, he's definitely a brother. He identifies as a brother. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know. So, you know, and it, was, it doesn't matter. Like you said, you're in the Super Bowl now. We definitely gonna claim. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. What do you? What do you? I mean, you were yeah. at the game. You were at the game in Kansas City. Uh, you know, when they beat Tennessee, Tennessee coming off uh, two straight road wins, surprising road wins uh, to get there. What was your take on, you know, his performance in the game and, and you know, him moving on to the Super Bowl? Uh, he's great, man. I said, I said, it was one brother. I, I, he said, I'm glad Patrick Mahomes is on my team. <laughs> right, right. Because, I mean, you know, this guy, you know, he's just a magician, man. And, and by the way, I was just so, you know, we've been doing this whole story on a, uh, you have a black quarterback, man. They were dropping like flies, man. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, you know, Deshaun and, and uh, Mahomes put on a great show. Man, Russell tried. Russell tried to get us there. I mean, he really. He tried. He, he I did. think. He, he. I mean, he. He's had an MVP season because he had. They had like nothing there. Man. No, he has. They, Seattle virtually had like virtually nothing. You right. know. Right. And he was on the back. You know. So no, uh, I was happy. You know, Mahomes is Mahomes is great, man. I mean. You know what can what can you say? This cat, uh, you know uh, what I do like on radio. I tell him how smart he is. Now that's a breakthrough. Mm-hmm. You know, that is a mm-hmm. breakthrough. They talk about how smart Holmes is because they would never say that about black quarterbacks. Right. Uh, who do you guys who do you guys like in the Super Bowl? By the way, now that we're here, what do you what do you think? I got to roll with you know I got to roll with Mahomes. We, we don't have a. Huh? I got to roll with Mahomes. Not just not just because I think not just because. Uh, He's a black quarterback, but uh, you know, I mean, just the, the you know how good he is, the how dynamic the offense is. I think uh, you know they'll be able to put some points up against San Francisco. And from the from the start from the start of the playoffs, in my mind, it was it was going to be either Lamar Jackson or Mahomes, and it was a toss up to me about which one of them. I thought they'd play against each other, but I but um, it was a toss up to me about who would out of those two who would win the Super Bowl. Uh, and since Lamar Jackson is out, I'm you know I'm sticking with Mahomes. You know I'm going to stick with Mahomes, but I'm actually so excited about this matchup. I you know I 
I like Richard Sherman. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're, they've been a great team. And the 49ers have, I think they're the first female coach um, to be in a Super Bowl is on their team. Um, I'm looking up her name, but I think that's also pretty groundbreaking. So, Oh, yeah. 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 She's got a lot of play, too. Uh, she's on commercials and the whole thing. Yeah, I'm just like, yeah. go ahead. So, you know, I'm kind of like, every, well, everybody wins. We're diverse. We may not... Yeah, we may not be hiring black coaches, but we're diverse. Somewhat, yeah. yeah. yeah they got one. They got, they got one uh, uh, female coach in the Super Bowl. Katie Sowers, or Sowers. I'm not sure how to pronounce her name, but mm-hmm. that's it. But, you know, one thing... We have her on the show. One thing got to bring up is uh, another person who made the Super Bowl is uh, Eric Bieniemy. Yes, he the, did. As the offensive coordinator, he gets to the Super Bowl, has a chance to get a Super Bowl ring uh, as the offensive coordinator... Uh, for the Kansas City Chiefs, but that obviously wasn't good enough to get him a job. We've we've talked about that before, but you know, Bill, last episode you mentioned and you wrote about it recently in a column, uh, just saying, you know, as far as as far as you know, bl- there being more black coaches or owners hiring uh, more black coaches, you you feel like the players themselves need to need to you know hold the ownership accountable and maybe you know get back to protesting. Yeah, speak up. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I, you know, I was, I kind of reported some of that story in Kansas City, and granted, it was like not the great, thing. you know, after a game, you're asking guys, don't you think you play, you know, right. you know, but I think what it would occur to me though, and I don't know what you guys think, you know, people are so reticent, players, I think, are so reticent for all the reasons we've talked about because how powerful the owners are and right. that kind of stuff. So people are really kind of afraid right. to step out of line. Right. You know, and they see what they did to Kaepernick. Right. And I think a lot of guys, a couple of guys said it to me. He said, man, you know, I just want to stay focused on playing. Right. You know, that's how you stay in this league a long time. You know, so it was sort of sobering to me that we could say that. Like you and me and Aaron, we could talk about, oh, you guys got to stand up. But then, you know, we have to look at our own positions and, you know, people have mortgages to pay and making, you know, these guys are making more money. They're trying to you know, so uh, if I ran into a guy in the airport the other day, he's an assistant coach uh, at Kansas State, uh, at Kansas State, mm-hmm. assistant football coach at Kansas State, and uh, I think he, uh, you know, he's talked to his brother. He talked about this, and he said, "Man, you know, we really need struggle." But he said, "Nobody's willing to die." And he said, "I, I don't want to die." Right. <laughs> you right. know. You know, and you know death in terms of you know your career. So, mm-hmm. you know, where do you guys? You know, it's, that's a reality. You know, um, yeah, players should say something, but they also what's the risk? Right, and I think if they're going to do it, it, it would have to be unified. That's that that's the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like you said, if one person steps out, um, you know, you are risking a lot, just like Kaepernick did. Now. And we've talked about this before. If it's if it's everybody, they can't get rid of everybody. But the right. problem is getting everybody on the same page. Not everybody thinks the same way, so that's a problem. And also, just quickly, exactly. R- Richard Sherman, you know, talked about this earlier. You know, Aaron brought up Richard Sherman. He he talked about this earlier. What about the fans? You know, the fans can't stop watching games. You know, you still supporting the NFL. Uh, you you want us you want us yeah. to protest, but you're not. What are you doing? Right. So you know, it's it's all that's of right. us together in this, really. Uh, but anyway, listen, coming up, we got we have a great conversation with Bob Kendrick, the executive director of the Negro uh, League Baseball Museum, and this, uh, as we celebrate 100 years of Negro League Baseball. So uh, stay tuned. 
Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 book titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. For you, the listeners of the Bill Roden on Sports podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. We highly recommend that you check out the classic $40 million slaves, The Rise, Fall, and Redemption of the Black Athlete by the one and only William C. Roden, an absolute must-read. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on Sports. Again, that's audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on Sports for your free audiobook. Right now we're joined by a very special guest. Uh, we have Bob Kendrick on the line. He's president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum since uh, 2011. Uh, and Bob's on the line with us now. We're going to have a discussion about the museum and all things Negro Leagues. Uh, how you doing, Bob? Jamal, I'm doing great, man. Thanks, guys, so much for having me on the show. No, that was great, man. It's great having you on the show. You've done a tremendous amount of work. This year is the 100-year anniversary of the, of the Negro Leagues. Um, Bob, can you just just tell us, you know, what what you've been doing as far as uh, the Negro League Baseball Museum is concerned, and the importance of the museum and the league in general? Well, we're really excited about this platform, potentially that this centennial celebration, 100 years of the birth of the Negro Leagues, and, and obviously, guys, it is my job and the job of the Negro Leagues Museum to help as many people as possible understand why this is significant. We believe that the formation of the Negro Leagues, which took place on February 13, 1920, here in Kansas City, is one of the most important occurrences, not in baseball history, but in American history. And I think, as Bill certainly knows, that this story is so much more than baseball. This is a story of as much as steep in the civil rights movement as any. This is a civil rights story. This is a story about the importance of economic empowerment, this is a story about an unprecedented level of leadership that occurred as a result of the formation of these leagues known as the Negro Leagues. And ultimately, it is about the social advancement of America as Jackie Robinson is handpicked from the great Kansas City Monarchs to become the chosen one to break baseball's what was then a six-decade-long self-imposed color barrier in 1947. And, of course, all of this is wrapped around these tremendously courageous athletes who just wanted to play ball. Now, they didn't know they were making all this history, but they were. They just wanted to play ball. And, and so it's a fascinating story. We're excited about telling this story in probably the most grandiose form in which this museum has been afforded to do so in quite some time. And so there's a lot riding on this celebration, and we want to talk about it as often as we possibly can and get people as engaged as we possibly can in and around the importance of the Negro Leagues. And as I mentioned, these leagues were formed here in Kansas City. As a matter of fact, the building that they were formed is right around the corner from the museum, mm. the old Paseo YMCA. That's where Rupe Foster led a contingent of eight independent black baseball team owners into Kansas City. They met there to establish what became the Negro National League, the first successful organized black baseball league and then the negro leagues would then go on to operate amazingly for 40 years from 1920 until 1960 mm. uh, tell, tell, tell us a little bit about uh, uh rube foster and, and why this was all necessary i mean for people who are wondering well you know why why they have to be a yeah. black mm. league or what why, exactly. why did you know, who was rube foster and and why 
you know, how did that come up? Why, why did he feel there had to be a, 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 a legal lead? Well, Bill, I, I think you can make the legitimate case that Rube Foster may be the most important person in baseball history. Because what yep. Rube was able to do in establishing the Negro Leagues was unprecedented. There had been other attempts to do so, and they had, they had failed. And Rube Foster had the juice. And, 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 of course, for your audience who may be too young to even know about the Negro Leagues, obviously during that era of segregation. They, they think the NBA is a Negro League. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, and all of this great black baseball talent, but both black and Hispanic baseball talent, who were shut out of the major leagues because of the color of their skin. The major leagues wouldn't allow African Americans to play, and they would not allow uh, Hispanic players to play, particularly those of darker skin. Once upon a time, I guess white Cubans could play in the major leagues, and I, right. life of me. I still don't understand why it was just white white Cubans, but they could play once upon a time. But if you were a darker skin, you couldn't play. And so, what did they do? They created a league of their own here in Kansas City in 1920, and Rube Foster was the mastermind behind it. I tell people all the time, Rube Foster was an absolute genius. Rube, who, when he created the Negro Leagues here in 1920, was also owner of the Chicago American Giants, and he would become president of the Negro Leagues, and, and he had the blueprint for a successful black baseball structure. But he was just like years ahead of his time. Rube Foster... As a manager, and in his career spans the gamut. Great player. He had been a great player in the early era of black baseball. Uh, great pitcher. As a matter of fact, Bill, he is credited with having invented what we now know to be the screwball. Back then, mm. it was called a fadeaway, and, and mm. Rue perfected that pitch so much so, guys, that the great manager, Major League Manager John McGraw, would sneak mm. Rue Foster into his camp so that Rube Foster could teach Christy Matheson how to mm. throw the screwball. Well, mm. Christy Matheson threw the pitch all the way into the National Baseball Hall of Fame that he learned from Rube Foster. But, of course, Rube never got credit for it. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, but Foster was best known as this visionary, tremendous leader, organized the Negro Leagues here in 1920, uh, would own the Chicago American Giants, would manage the Chicago American Giants, and as a manager, he was known to find his ball players as much as $5 in the early 1900s if you were tagged out standing up. You were supposed to slide. Wow. Rube would draw a circle down the first baseline and a circle down the third baseline, and if every one of his players couldn't drop a bunt inside that circle, he would find them. Mm. He was adamant about the style of play that became signature Negro Leagues baseball, mm. fast, aggressive, Daring man, they bunt their way on. They steal second. They steal third. And if you weren't too smart, they were stealing home. Mm. And fans were flocking to those games. It was polar opposite to what you saw in the major leagues. And so the pace of the game and the the flair of the game. And so people were flocking to these games. But you know, he had the business acumen to make all of this work, though. When you know, most people think of of the Negro leagues, they think of. Uh, you know, the players and black players getting a chance and all the great black players there were before they were allowed to play in the major leagues. But you touched on, you know, a couple of things that are definitely more important, uh, the economic empowerment and the leadership uh, opportunities for black people, even, you know, way back then. Uh, could you just go into more about, 
you know, all those opportunities and, and how we may, we may have lost a lot of those opportunities since then? Well, of course, of course, because I tell people all the time, wherever you had successful black baseball, you had thriving black economies. And, and, and quite frankly, to a great extent, black economy never recovered from losing the Negro Leagues. Mm. Mm. So as I mm. share with my guests right. here, what was good morally, what was good socially, was devastating economically. Mm. And, and to kind of put it in perspective, it wasn't uncommon for these athletes to go into a town, fill up the ballpark, yet not be able to get a meal from the same fans who had just cheered them right. or not have a place to stay. So they would sleep on the bus and eat their peanut butter and crackers until they could get to a town that would offer them basic services. Mm. Well, black-owned businesses like, for example, here in Kansas City, the Street Hotel, the Street Hotel was a majestic black-owned hotel. It started to emerge to meet those needs. Mm. Negro Leagues Baseball brought it a built-in clientele that led those black-owned businesses to their economic heights. And, and so, yeah, I'm not sure the African-American community realized what we were losing when we lost the Negro Leagues. We were excited about the integration of our sport because the prevailing belief was that the major leagues was the highest league in which you could play this game. And so I think it was a natural curiosity for black fans to want to see how our great black stars were going to fare now that Jackie had created this opportunity. And so fans flocked to go see Jackie and then Larry Doby and subsequently Roy Campanella and Satchel Paige and others as they moved into the major leagues and we left the Negro Leagues to do so. And so it ultimately led to the demise of the Negro Leagues. At this point now, you couldn't justify having these two parallel leagues operating because the fan base that had supported black baseball had moved over to watch their great black stars now. Mm. And so Roop Foster, when he created a league in 1920, he actually thought he would create a league that was so dynamic that he would force Major League Baseball's hand to expand. So, Bill, think AFL, NFL, right. NBA, uh-huh. ABA. Right. That's what Rube Foster was thinking in the 1920s, man. And, and it's fascinating how forward he was. He was almost right. Instead, Major League Baseball focused on the field and started to siphon all of that talent out of the Negro Leagues, which ultimately killed the Negro League. Bob, I was wondering if you could talk, uh, what's the museum's relationship with some of the, the former Negro League owners? I'm thinking in particular, there are a few female league owners, like um, I think Minnie, uh, Minnie Forbes is one of the last ones. Minnie Forbes. Minnie Forbes is still, Minnie Forbes is still thankfully still with us living in the Detroit area. And of course, Effa Manley has passed away. And, and of course, the museum expounds on that little known but very profound role that women had in the Negro League. So you can imagine, Aaron, it is an awakening for a lot of people when they come in here and they see these images of the three players, Tony Stone, Connie Morgan, and Mamie Peanut Johnson, although Minnie Forbes also suited up at one point in time. Hmm. And then they get a chance to meet Minnie Forbes, and they get a chance to meet Effa Manley, who she and her husband, Abe Manley, ran, owned the Newark Eagles, but it was Mrs. Manley who ran the day-to-day operations of that baseball team. And, guys, she knew the business of baseball as well as any man. Had some great talent play for her. My dear friend, the late, great Monty Irvin, Larry Doby, 
Leon Day, Willie Wells. These guys mm-hmm. are all in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Don mm-hmm. Newcomb should be in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. All played for Effa Manley's Newark Eagles. She's the first woman to be nominated and inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. So, yes, the Negro League plays a very profound, innovative role. As I tell my guests all the time, the Negro Leagues were giving women an opportunity to do things in this country before this country gave women an opportunity to do things. It was Mm -hmm. a very pioneering league. And so it also speaks to the inclusive nature of what the Negro Leagues represented. And I think that's part of that greater story as it relates to the Negro Leagues. When we start to look at the globalization of this game, man, it was the Negro Leagues that took professional baseball into Canada. They were oftentimes the first Americans to play in many Spanish-speaking countries. Guys, believe it or not, it was a touring team of Negro Leaguers who introduced professional baseball to the Japanese going all the way back to 1927. Bill, that's years before Ruth and his All-Stars go over. You know, they've been commonly credited with having taken professional baseball to Japan, but it's not true. It was a team called the Philadelphia Royal Giants who would go to Japan in 1927, play a 24-game exhibition series. They go 23-0-1 on the tour. The tour was so successful that several years later, Ruth and his All-Stars would get invited over. And I always preface that with my visitors because as we look at the game today in its global capacity, There are so many ethnicities that make up a major league roster on any given day. Well, at the heart of it were the Negro Leagues. They helped make the game the global game that it is today. And quite frankly, y'all, the Negro Leagues didn't care what color you were. All they cared was can you play. And if you can play, you can play. Wow. I mean, mean, people don't think about the the fact that, like you you mentioned earlier, the Hispanics – uh, were allowed to play in the Negro yes. League, and then you look at the you look at Major League Baseball today, and the percentage of Hispanics that Absolutely. are in, in the league. Right. Um, you know, the Negro League needs, needs to get credit as far as that goes, also. Oh, no question. I mean, they were playing all over the globe, and, and, and you know, the it drips with irony mm-hmm. because these players would go to those Spanish-speaking countries, whether it was Cuba, Puerto Rico, Venezuela, Mexico. It didn't matter. They would go to those countries. And they were treated like heroes. Mm. So they're staying in the finest hotels. They're eating in the finest restaurants that those countries Mm. had to offer. And then you come home and you're treated like a second-class citizen. So as a result, so many Negro League players would call those Spanish-speaking countries home because in those countries they weren't black baseball players. They were just baseball players. That's all they ever wanted to be. But in this country, as I mentioned, that dark-skinned Spanish-speaking athlete couldn't play in the major leagues either, so he found sanctuary playing in the Negro Leagues. So, again, when Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier, he didn't do it for just American-born blacks. He does it for every player of color who now enjoys our great sport. Uh, I just want to go back to the integration thing. I thought it was important to – uh, you know, talk about uh, Luke Foster's vision, which was, you know, eventually he wanted to bring a full team into Major League Baseball, right? Or for, you know, it wasn't, you know, he, he, his vision of integration was not what Major League Baseball turned it into. Absolutely. Because under Rue's model, Bill, you would have had complete integration of the sport. So not only would you have had black players, you'd have had black owners, 
You'd have black yeah. managers. You'd have black coaches, team physicians, traveling secretaries. Every aspect was being fulfilled of the business of baseball in the Negro Leagues. So you stop to think about it. Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier in 1947. You don't get your first black coach in the major leagues until 15 years later when Buck O'Neill becomes the first African-American coach in major league baseball history with the Chicago Cubs in 1962. Mm -hmm. And I got a chance many years, as you know, I spent many years with Buck. And I asked him about that watershed moment for him. And he says, Bob, I couldn't stick out my chest because I'm the first black coach in Major League Baseball history. Yeah, it was a better working condition. I made a little bit more money. But I knew all of these other great baseball minds who were more than capable of waving a guy home. (laughs) And it takes 15 years before that happens. And then Frank Robinson becomes the first black manager years after that. And Bill Lucas, the first black GM, years after that. So on the Rube Foster's model, we've had all of this from the onset. And I think you would have had even a greater pipeline of black players coming and continuing to come into the major leagues. Bob, before we close out, I wanted to talk about the event that's coming up this week. Um, You're going to be at the Yoga Bear Museum in New Jersey. um, Talking about, because I guess there's an exhibit there that's on loan and there's a, a film screening. It is. It is. We have a wonderful exhibit. As a matter of fact, it was the first exhibit that the museum ever created called Discover Greatness, an Illustrated History of the Negro Leagues. And this beautiful chronicling of the Negro Leagues through about 90 frame black and white photographs and text panels. And the Yogi Berra Museum took the exhibit for display there late last year, and they are just rave reviews about having the exhibit. Matter of fact, they are talking to us now about extending the exhibit because it's being so well received. And then on Friday, in conjunction with the exhibit being there, I'll join filmmaker Lauren Meyer for a screening of her film called The Other Boys of Summer. And it's a wonderful film, a short film, where she spent several years interviewing Negro League players about their experiences in the Negro Leagues. And it's great to hear this firsthand account of what life was like for them, traveling the highways and byways of our country, but also the exquisite joy that came with playing baseball. Yeah, so it's so easy for folks to dwell on the hardships because that's what we have a tendency to do. But even when we look at the context of how we frame this story at the Negro League Museum, it ain't about the adversity. It's about what they did to overcome the adversity. That's the real story. And, and through this wonderful documentary, those who will be with us on, on Friday evening will hear these firsthand accounts from the likes of Minnie Minoso and Monty Irvin and uh, Jim Robinson, who is still with us. He just turned 90 years old there in the New York area, Pedro Sierra, who's going to be with me at that screening. And then we'll do a Q&A after the screening of the film, and so I'm looking forward. I've never been to the Yogi Berra Museum before, and, and, and so I'm excited about that. I'm excited about the fact that the exhibit is playing so well there, and I've seen the film multiple times because I screened it at the All-Star Game. We had it here in Kansas City. We did it over at Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati last February, and so I've done several of these different screenings, and so, but I always look forward to seeing it because as I looked at that that documentary, out of the guys that she interviewed, I think only two remain with us. And, and what it reminds me, and, and I'm reminded of this pretty much every single day, the fragility 
of this story as it relates to those who made this history. It wasn't a matter of, of if, it's simply a matter of when they're all going to be gone. And so we knew that it was literally a race against time for this museum. And, and this 100th anniversary celebration, I think, adds even more credence to its importance to make sure that we document and substantiate as much as we can while we still have the remaining few players with us. And, and so, But I'm looking forward to coming there to the New York area there in Montclair, New Jersey, to do this screening and get a chance to meet people and tell a few lies. You know, we like we say, tell a few stories. Now, now I'll let y'all decide which one of them are true. <laughs> now, now, Bob, you're you're also going to talk with Pedro Sierra, right? The uh, he was with the Indianapolis Clowns. Yeah, no, Pedro Sierra, one of the players, and a and a Cuban-born player. Mm. Uh huh. So that again talks about that inclusive nature of what the Negro Leagues were all about. Right. So Pedro will be there with me, and and we'll we'll be sharing some stories and talking a little bit about Negro Leagues history. Mm. You know, he lived it. And for me, I get a chance to relate the experiences that I've kind of gained from having known so many of the players, you know, including my dear friend, the late great Buck O'Neill, who was my mentor and one of my very best friends. And so I tell people all the time, the smartest thing that I think I may have ever done was I kept my mouth closed and I listened. And so now I get to share these stories with those who now have an interest in black baseball history and in particular the Negro Leagues. Uh, That's great stuff. Uh, Bob, thanks a lot uh, for joining us. Bob Kendrick, uh, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Definitely check that out. Uh, Check out his uh, upcoming exhibit at the Yogi Berra Museum in Montclair, New Jersey on on Friday, right? Yeah, we'll be there with the screening, and and people can come out and check out the exhibit Friday, January 24th, 6 o'clock, I believe it is, at the Yogi Berra Museum. Great stuff. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Bob. Thank you. Man, anytime. Anytime. Hey, Bob, Thank this is great, guys. man. And look forward to catching up. But uh, congratulations. Yeah, it's going to be a really exciting year for you. Yeah, no, I understand you're coming out to do something with um, the Nelson Atkins? Yes, yes, uh, in March. And I think I'm going to be doing a book signing at your museum. That's what we're, Ray was mentioning that to me. I'm super excited, looking forward to seeing you. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, keep the, keep the faith. <laughs> and don't, and don't right, and remember sir. Kirk Flood, too. We got, that's another campaign. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yes, sir. All right, guys. All right, Thank talk you. Soon. Travel Thanks safely. A lot. Take care now. Bye. Okay. Bye now. Thank you, Brother Kendrick. Well, uh, wraps up another uh, scintillating edition of Bill Road on Sports. Uh, I'd like to thank my two great uh, co-hosts, great Jamal Murphy and Aaron Mathewson. Thank you, Bill. Thank, uh, you. thank you so thank much you. for holding it down. Likewise. Yeah. And uh, we will. Uh, oh yes, hold it down here in chilly Daytona Beach. Um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, see you guys next week uh, on another version of Bill Road on Sports. Uh, meanwhile, everybody uh, enjoy the weekend and God bless.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.